We should do a show because I have dinner. Oh, all right. Sounds good. You rat bastard. <laughs> that way, man. I should know that by now. All right. So here we go. Today is Wednesday, November 25th, 2015, and this is episode 140 of the Defensive Security Podcast, also known as the Thanksgiving edition. That's true. And thank you once again for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for being on the show. So uh, just a reminder, the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. By the way, just kind of kicking off the show, I do want to make a correction to something I said last week. Something that both of us should have caught. Yeah. And we just glazed over it. Fat, dumb, and happy. Here we go. So, See, what happens is once you hit number five on iTunes, you just our quality goes to crap. That's true. We don't even bother. Any, we just, we're just coasting. We're just phoning in. <laughs> Skyping it in. Skyping it in. That's right. All right. So, so, uh, so we, on our sword. Yeah, I, I, on, our, uh, on our last episode, we talked about the J.P. Morgan you know, mega breach, uh, which was actually a, a a part of a big amalgamation of a, a crime syndicate. And I kept referring to banks uh, as acquiring bank or as uh, issuing banks uh, the, the, as the ones that were being fined by the card brands. And actually what I should have said was acquiring banks because acquiring banks are the ones who accept money from uh, potentially illegitimate sellers and issuing banks are the ones who actually send you your credit card. So um, yeah, Sorry about that. Fall on my sword. Yeah, it, it, you know, and I work for a bank that does credit card processing. You would think I could have caught that. Yeah, but, well. Uh, it's And it can be a three-step system between the actual uh, merchant and, you know, the Visa MasterCards, American Expresses of the world. So, yep. so uh, you know, the acquirers, uh, much like uh, my employer, who, you know, which is public knowledge. I work for a company called Elevon, which is a division of U.S. Bank. What we do is, is we are an acquirer. So we are the first step when you swipe a card um, or use it as an, an EMV card. It comes to our servers first. So, uh, and everything I'm saying is public knowledge. There's nothing here that's confidential. Uh, this is all on our public website. So, uh, in the instance of, of the story we were talking about last week, the concept is bad guys finding an acquirer uh, and seeing if they can run cards through. Right. Uh, as, as a, basically as a merchant. And it sounded like that uh, some of those acquiring banks potentially were being complicit or, or at least cooperating to some extent. Well, yeah, again, without talking about anything specific to my organization, most of the acquiring banks have extensive anti-fraud and fraud detection. Uh, so they're looking for these sorts of activities um, you know, as, as part of daily normal business and as part of their agreements with the various car brands and such. So for, you know, for somebody to not be conducting anti-fraud or kind of turning a blind eye to fraud is definitely a no-no in that industry. Yeah, and I think this, this, one of the, the big headlines there, at least for me, was 
that some of these banks, uh, you know, were, were basically taking the hit from the, you know, from the the card brands who would, you know, basically fine the bank for for <laughs> acting inappropriately, and this, you know, the, the, these people who now have been arrested were actually um, repaying the fine, and it was it, they had a whole system worked out. So, yeah. Anyway. That was uh, that was last week. Thank you to Ellie Miller for uh, for pointing out my my error. I'm sure this is not the only one we make. So our corrections portion of the show make it longer and longer as time goes on. Yeah, like could take up the entire show. <laughs> Maybe we'll just have like every now and then we'll have a an entire show that's a correction. And then there'll be corrections to our corrections. Yeah, and so uh, on. Why did we start that? Jeez. <laughs> so. Anyhow, um, let's get into our stories here. So our first one comes from uh, healthcaredive.com. This is, a, this is a story that's been banging around for a long time, and apparently it is coming to a end. So LabMD was a company here in Atlanta. A couple of years ago, they got breached, and uh, the FTC actually started going after them, uh, saying that they were not you know, exercising proper diligence and care of the data. And, uh, and actually LabMD in the ensuing time has gone out of business. They've, they filed bankruptcy. And I know we've talked about this, uh, quite a lot because the FTC has been pretty activist with, uh, companies who have been breached and, you know, kind of going after them. And, uh, there's been lots of controversy because the FTC basically has no, um, objective guidance, right? All, all they'll do is basically say, well, you know, you didn't do the right thing. We're not going to tell you what the right thing is. We'll just tell you when you didn't do the right thing. Um, so anyway, the story here is that uh, LabMD, who is only the second company to have fought an FTC uh, action like this, Wyndham being they the other They fought the law, and the law? Lost. Oh! So a judge has apparently rejected the FTC's action and sided with LabMD, who, you know, ironically is not around to benefit from this action. But uh, I think the, um, you know, the, the point of this article is that uh, this, you know, I think there's a, um, a legal body here who is opining on this saying that, you know, this is potentially going to raise the bar for uh, what the FTC does in the future. You know, so there was a, there was, a, I think, kind of a, concern in the industry that the FTC was going to get a lot more uh, proactive and now potentially this is going to change that although they do say that the the, uh, the article does say that they expect the FTC to appeal so there may be more to which come. is interesting because the company's out of business so I'm guessing it's really just the remnants of the company or who owns it or you know whoever is holding the the, yeah. the assets of the organization right and well I, I suspect the FTC doesn't want that precedent Sitting on the books. Well, yeah, but they've already driven the company, well, not directly, but somewhat directly out of business. So. Well, I mean, that's, that's true. But they, you know, they don't want their, they don't want the size of their hammer to be diminished by this. (laughs) That is true. So anyway, you know, more, more to come. It, this is, um. You know, I guess depending on where you sit politically, this is uh, you know either a good thing or a bad thing, but um, it's a thing. And the FTC appeared to be one of the you know one of the 
I guess, few regulatory hammers except for specific vertical industries like healthcare, uh, which was chasing companies around who were not exercising due care. So, In their opinion. In, the, in their opinion, that's right. The other thing that's kind of completely off topic, but maybe chuckle with this article, is you can tell we now have the OCC or the uh, ADD uh, basically generation because the article starts with like three bullet points of here's your briefing on this article. <laughs> and then it gets into if you want to go into insights, but it gives you like a really little snippet of like little little sound bites of, of what the article is about at the beginning. Which, which, uh, yeah, I, I agree because they do have a, a a brief which is three paragraphs, and then the actual article is another four paragraphs. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yep. Well, welcome to to today's attention span. That's right. So, moving on to our next story is uh, this one is from Data Breach Today, and the title is "What the J.P. Morgan Chase Breach Teaches Us." So, um. You know, the the, uh, the there's a person interviewed here. His name is Chuck Eastom, I think is how you say his name. Who has a pretty impressive resume, I guess. He has written 19 books, holds six patents, and 38 computer cert- certifications. But you know the, the the point he is trying to hammer home is, holy cow! How could J.P. Morgan not have encrypted their data? <laughs> Now, I would like to point out, and we've talked about this, not necessarily in the context of J.P. Morgan, we've talked about this in the context of other companies, in, in what's been reported relative to the J.P. Morgan breach is that the people got, or whoever got this, well, we know who got in now, right? Um, they got in, uh, apparently through some phishing emails, the systems that they targeted apparently were not being protected by two-factor authentication. And these attackers allegedly had access, administrative access, to 90 servers in the J.P. Morgan environment. Administrative access, right? want to point out that this is not like doing a SQL, you know, SQLI dump of a database, right? This is, you know, they had all the access they need to get... So let's keep in mind, as you're saying, encryption has to be unlocked by something for it to be useful, and they had those keys. Well, or we don't know for sure that they would have had the keys, but in all likelihood... uh, It is possible. It is possible to set up encryption in such a way that your admins don't have the ability to unencrypt it. But that is incredibly rare, and probably precedent setting if somebody actually took that step where they didn't trust administrative uh, accounts with the ability to decrypt. Uh, right. Yeah. right. I, I think the point is if if that's the threat that you are trying to cover, and I'm not saying that it's wrong, right? I mean, I kind of, I agree with the fundamental premise that if you can encrypt the data and you can keep it out of the hands of the bad guys or girls, that's a good thing, and we should strive for that. However, I think the problem is that's a hell of a lot harder in practice right. than it seems because of the way we're getting attacked these days. Right. We, we are, in essence, are – when we encrypt something, it's at rest typically, right? There's all 
thousand different ways to do this, but let's talk this through. What he's really talking about is data at rest encryption. Okay, great. But I still have to work with that data. So something has to be have to have the ability to unencrypt that data and work with it. It could be the file system. It could be the hard drive itself. It could be the operating system level. It could be the application level. It could be row level. It could be file level encryption. But something somewhere has to work with that data. And if you've got somebody who's who's compromised your credentials, and if they've compromised, compromised, can't talk tonight, the credentials of somebody who has that permissions, the system will do exactly as designed and happily unencrypt that data and hand it to that user. Yeah. So how do you fight that? Well, you know, I think there are solutions out there. At, at some point, though, I, or, I don't think it's an encryption problem. I think it's, it's not. A, well, it's not. I mean, it's there, a privileged account management problem. It, it is, and there are. I think there are ways that you can continue to shrink the box around the data. Right? You can't ever really make it go away because at some point you're keeping the data for a reason. Somebody's going to have to access it, and that's just unavoidable. Uh, it, because if you didn't, if that wasn't the case, don't keep the data. Um, but you can do things. I, mean, I know there are lots of encryption schemes, which I think are much more complex, much more expensive, which rely on things like HSMs and and whatnot. Um, you know, where where the keys are kind of squirreled away. But again, th- those are often associated with a user ID or or a specific path into the data. Which you know, again, if you know, if you're really, what we're talking about is changing business practice to really yes fight this exactly. And, you know, I would probably more fight this with monitoring, logging, behavior analysis, baselining behavior, and saying, well, you know, this admin suddenly is copying all this data out of this database or off this file system that we've never seen before. That's odd. Yeah, I I agree. Although the one thing I will say, and, you know, I'm, I'm starting to grow a little bit skeptical or concerned, maybe not skeptical is not the right word, but, you know, if if you do see that, you know, it is it too late? <laughs> you know, so it's it's great that uh, you know that you detected it, but if they've already got the data, you, you haven't. It depends on the size of data and how they plan to exfiltrate it. And that's you know, fair. We're talking about huge amounts of data lately. Uh, I don't know that that's a bad thing, especially if you've got twenty four seven SOC. You may be able to shut it down midstream. You may be able to really, really minimize your damage. Yeah. Yep. I, I mean, <laughs> at least you'll know. And knowing is half the battle. Yeah, we still haven't figured out what the other half is, though. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. I've got to rethink my entire childhood. <laughs> so, anyway, um, I guess you know the, the the reason I wanted to talk about this one is it it's really easy. It's a it's a it's an easy platitude to throw out in the context of a of an article to say, you know what, these companies these breach companies, they should have been using encryption. But when you get under it, it's a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. And you know, I, I um I don't disagree that that's a good approach as long as it's designed in such a way that is, you know, really addressing the problem. And you know and Yeah, and, and let's keep in mind Encryption does help a lot of things. It definitely narrows the attack surface. It definitely makes it more difficult to get to data. We're not saying don't encrypt, but we're saying understand the paths in and out of that encrypted system and what has permissions to decrypt the data and understand that that's typically what the bad guys are going for. 
Exactly right. But encryption is still very valuable. It's very appropriate. It also helps for lots of internal accidental misuse issues. And, you know, we're not saying don't encrypt. We're just saying be, it's not a panacea. And you've got to understand what it's doing and not doing. Yeah, exactly. So moving on to our next story, and this one comes from CSO Online, and the title is Dombala Finds Tools Related to the Malware That Hits Sony. All right. Interest full disclosure. Many moons ago, I did work at Dombala for about a year and a half. And and anything bad that's happened to them was completely coincidental, right? Uh, they did spell it wrong in the first sentence. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, I I just, I like to be transparent. Fair fair enough. But that was six, seven years ago now. Jeez. So anyway, um, the the deal here is that Dumballa apparently found two specific tools, um, which, you know, it's, it's a, I guess, never let a PR moment escape you, right? But yeah, I would say the connection to Sony is a little sketchy here. Um, you know, h- however, let's for a second suspend disbelief. And what they've apparently found is hanging out with the same family of malware that was allegedly used uh, at Sony called Destrover. Uh, they found a couple of two specific uh, utilities. One is intended to timestamp, so basically allow the you know, allow some malware to uh, completely reset the time of arbitrary files which is great you know if you're trying to hide some malware amongst the stack of files because now it's it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb and then the other one was uh basically a a log cleaner it would would basically go and allow the attackers to set us you know kind of a start and end date and, and would would allow the windows event logs to be purged for that specific uh, second one also could change checksums Yes. Files, which I thought was actually more interesting than just changing a timestamp. Right. But I think the you know the point point there is, uh, at least with respect to the logs, you know, get your logs off the system. Yeah. No kidding. Um, and do not. I, I I cannot tell you how concerning and how problematic this has been throughout my career when people keep. The only copy of the logs on the system. And the system gets compromised, and you have no idea what the hell has gone wrong because the logs are gone, or, the, or at least they're suspect, right? Because yeah, this how is, can you trust them? Yeah, this what's, is what's the... this is simple stuff, very simple stuff. But also, I think the you know, point is that, like you said, uh, there's really trivial ways to change the uh, date stamps and the checksums. So. You know, those are not reliable indicators when you're checking out a system. So not a lot more to say on that one. Well, one thing I will say is that this shows that it is very easy to change the indicators of compromise for various pieces of malware. And that these malware exploit kits or whatnot are clearly equipped with this so you've got to be careful what you're trusting if you're trusting just looking for a a checksum of of an executable that clearly isn't good enough yeah that's a good point and you know if you have any doubts about that just google the words antivirus evasion techniques right and you know 
go go to town. It it is um it is not a complicated thing that, anymore. And in fact, there's actually uh, I think last week we don't have any stories about this, but there was a um I think some online service will actually obfuscate your malware for you so that it's uh, not detected by any antivirus. So, yeah. Um the next story we have is a long one and it's not, you know, directly uh technical, I guess I'll say, but this comes from slate.com and the title is Inside the Sony Hack. Wow, let me try that again. Inside the Sony Hack. What it was like to be a rank and file Sony employee as the unprecedented cyber attack tore the company apart. We talk a lot about the consequences of a breach. And we talk, you know, we've sort of started to hint around, well, maybe it's not a fatal event. But I really thought this story kind of did a good job of showing the stakes of why what we do as Blue Team matters and what is, why it's important and the impacts it does have on people. Yeah. It, it's um, it, it's a, I think it's three pages long. It's a very long article, and it it uh, kind of gives the you know a somewhat blow by blow version of what happened uh, throughout the you know, throughout the attack, and you know from the from the time that it happened uh, all the way through kind of earlier this year. Um, it, interesting stuff, you know. Like uh, one of the things that was I, I thought was really interesting is that the apparently the organization within Sony that got hit the hardest was their HR department. Well, they were the ones definitely under the most stress. Yeah. When you think about it, you know, one thing I thought was interesting too, and this feeds into that, is kind of building up to why the HR department was so impacted is the morale and. The, the communication problems that they had as this progressed. And the, the story does an interesting job of sort of laying out initially. People were kind of, you know, pulling together, rah, rah, let's, we can overcome this. And, and, you know, this is an inconvenience, but we'll, we'll persevere and, and push through it. But then as it progressed, especially as there was uh, threats to individuals in the organization uh, and people weren't necessarily sure if they were going to get paid on time and they didn't know how much they needed to get paid and people were getting cut checks incorrectly uh, and their personal information was getting leaked. Uh, a lot of people started to really turn on the company a little bit mm-hmm. and start to get very frustrated and that unity and sense of purpose and that sense of we're in this together, we're in this foxhole fighting this fight definitely started to fracture. And, you know, the load on the HR department who lost all of their systems in essence and had to go back to figuring everything out on paper and cutting manual checks was apparently pretty, pretty huge and, and company employee concerns. And uh, the other thing that, that I thought was interesting, and, you know, this could be a little, I don't know, classist, uh, but there's definitely was a feel, according to this article, for those who were the rank and file, that they were far more impacted and far more concerned than the leadership and that the leadership sort of took it more in stride. Uh, and the, the, the subcontext I thought was, well, it's because the leadership makes more money and, you know, it's less impactful to them. I, I will argue having been in a leadership role in a crisis, part of your expectation as a leader is to project that image. Yeah, of, that's a good of, point. Of calmness and we will get through this and it will be okay. So I don't know that's necessarily a class thing so much as it is 
rightly or wrongly, the expectation of leadership and the image that they're supposed to project during a crisis. A um, little, little bit of an aside, but yeah, uh, you know, because they started talking about things like the Sony employees were offered a, a year-long subscription to a fraud protection service called All Clear, whereas the more affluent employees went and bought LifeLock, which is the quote-unquote premier service and pricier. Just debatable, but whatever. Um, anyway, so there's definitely some some underlying classist tones to this article. But what I thought was really interesting was, you know, if we as blue team screw up badly and we do have a hack uh, to this extent, it really does have a meaningful impact on our employees. Yeah, even though they didn't go out of business, I think that's a great point because mm-hmm. I mean, they they talk about. People were working six or seven uh, days a week for you know, eighteen hours a day for for quite a long time. Yeah. So it, it, this is, you know, we, what we do is important. I'd be curious on what their attrition rate was. Um, you know, most of the people I think they interviewed for the story were former employees. So I think it sounds like yeah. it was pretty pretty bad. I, I will say, uh, somebody that I had shared this story with. Uh, uh, who chooses not to be named knows people at Sony at the time and says that they they took issue with some of the accuracy of the story. So, oh really? Didn't, yeah, didn't give me any other details, but interesting. Yeah, so I don't know if it's helpful to bring that up or not, but take with a grain of salt, I guess. You know, it's it's a bit of a he said, she said, and a bit of telephone going on here with you know my brother's cousin's roommate's next door neighbor. Knew somebody who knew Ferris Bueller, but um. <laughs> well, it, it is interesting. N- none of the people they talked to would go on record. Yeah, um, you know, basically saying, and the reason given was that, you know, if you speak out against your, form, you know, if you speak out against a studio, it kind of blacklists you in the entire industry. No one who would want to do that. So, yeah, um, uh, it's a fairly small industry when you get down to it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I can't, I can't fault them for that, but. At the yeah. same time, it does open the door for some, you know, potential questionable reports. But you know, whatever. It, it's a it's it's a great read. Um, they're still in business, still releasing movies. You know, um, and again, I you know, look, you can't get hit any harder than Sony got hit. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and at least from a you know from a, a IT perspective, and they're still they're still kicking. So I I do wonder if we need to kind of step back and refactor our you know the the FUD machine a little. It makes for a hell of a DR case study too. It does, I, and I'll, I'll tell you, I think a lot of organizations have you know kind of like when Snowden did his thing, you know, and and contractors were all the rage. Oh my God, if we can't have contractors have access to our intellectual property that's just terrible i I do think you're right that this is you know this is a this kind of case being war gamed out in a lot of organizations but then you have to come back to what's likelihood and how much are you willing to spend well how many yeah exactly how many times has this happened yeah it's happened like three times it's like trying to build your environment to defend against nsa you're probably you're not going to reasonably with the cost that that would entail, and yeah, if you're worried about the NSA, you're in trouble. That's that's all I can say. I do wonder if 
for the average corporation. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree on, on the NSA front. I mean, I think we, I think you should do the, you know, what's reasonable for your organization. But you know, you, if you get too laser focused on defending against the NSA, you're going to lose the. Not only are you going to lose the war, but you know, you're going to, you're not going to be focusing on the right things. Um, but I do wonder in thinking about the NSA, sorry, the Sony style um, attack is whether insurance is a, you know, is is a reasonable mitigation you know and and i don't i actually don't know if they had insurance i that wasn't very clear well that's an interesting question so insurance doesn't mitigate for your employees being worked into the ground and burning out insurance doesn't mitigate for morale issues insurance doesn't mitigate for productivity issues turnover no that that's true trust <laughs> yeah. You know, there's there's a whole lot of things that insurance doesn't fix in the short term. You know, maybe in the long term. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more in the long term and 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 maybe in terms of recovery, right? So, yeah. you know, the one thing that struck me too is that um their DR plan wasn't real robust. And and I know you know have, having hung around uh, the banking sector for a while, like the FFIC, recently this uh, earlier this year they came out with some some updated guidance, which I think you know maybe this is the impetus for that guidance. I'm not really sure, but you know they're they're kind of coming to recognize that the one of the attack vectors is you know uh, d- data destruction, which you know, if if you have let's say a a replicated set, you know, you got a primary data center that does a replica to an offsite location, uh, and it that works great if you're if you, if the thing you're trying to cover for is that data center, you know, going up in in flames, right? But if someone attacks your you know your your systems and corrupts your data, that corruption is going to get replicated across. Yeah. Um, now I. I've not heard anything about the DR capability of Sony. However, having read this article and some other things, it seems to me like they had nothing. Um, they, had, they, they, had, they had nothing. And Admittedly, we do not have all knowledge of Sony's environment. Well, that's true. But they, I mean, they, talk, look, they talked about having to stand up a temporary email system like a month after the, the, the attack. So it, it's pretty clear to me, either they didn't trust their backup systems... Or their recovery systems, or um, you know, they they had a uh, they they weren't there, or they were also impacted, and and so I think the I guess the the take one of the takeaways for me is this is a scenario I guess that you can kind of put into the design of your disaster recovery capability. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know that. Look, from a workstation perspective, that's a possibility, right? But I don't. I mean, as an IT guy, as long time IT guy, the one thing that struck me since day one has been that it just feels unacceptable that their entire environment, you know, the infrastructure side was so heavily impacted and, and unrecoverable. But is it that rare? If your DR, for instance, let's say you've got two main data centers, and let's say they've got one in LA and they've got another one, I don't know, in Denver, and they're up and they're hot, hot. And that and the impact impacted everything. Your DR just went with it. 
So you almost have to have a cold, yeah, exactly. offline DR environment, which I don't know how many people do that anymore, especially in the age of virtualization and SAN systems that can auto-replicate. And I don't know. I, I, but I think that's, most, the, that's the question, though, right? Is, is this that right? DR is focused on a local disaster taking out a data center, not necessarily a system-wide or enterprise-wide malware attack right now. Yeah, but, you know, so so let's just think about it for a second because, you know, the, the Sony style or, you know, Shamoon in Saudi Aramco or the Dark Soul in, you know, in, in South Korea, you know, it doesn't have to be that. It could be, you know, somebody clicks on a crypto locker email and they... You know, they they happen to, let's just say, it's one of your IT people. And, you know, they, they encrypt one of your file servers. Well, you know, okay, that file server is now replicated off to your to your hot site. Well, what are you going to do now? And and I guess my, my, my point is, you know, th- th- I, I think there's a movement afoot and not necessarily specific to the Sony style attack, but there is a a definite movement afoot that uh, is destroying data, you know, rather than, you know, just DDoSs and, and, and and that sort of thing. And, and I guess my point is we ought to really start thinking about that con, you know, about that in the context of our DR plans and that's all. Uh, Yeah, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. And I guess what I'm saying is I, I thought your comment was a little harsh that they, Shame on them for not, because I don't think many people are today. Now, I agree with you. We should be. But I don't think many people are today. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, maybe I'm being overly harsh. But then again, you know what? I'm a big internet jerk. So <laughs> People like to see us fight on the show. This drama they come here for. <laughs> That's right. So, Man, you're so lame. You probably still use VI. Oh Emacs yeah, and you get where it's at. Yeah, yeah. I figured you'd be an Emacs guy. <laughs> Makes sense to me now. <laughs> All right. So our last story for tonight. We com- lost half our audience there. Sorry. Yeah. All right. Last, Bring it back. Bring it back. The last story for tonight comes from. And by the way, you know, Andy and I have been friends for way too long. So <laughs> it's, it's true. Since the dinosaurs roamed. That's right. We, uh, we were we were uh, we were flying around on pterodactyls at one point, right? And we were good at it. That's right. So last days, we will have to tell some more stories, but yes, uh, we have to wait for some people to die because otherwise they'll sue us. True. Oh boy! And then if they, oh never, I'm not even going to go there. So um, yeah, our, our last story for tonight comes from Krebs on Security, and the title is "Breach at IT Automation Firm Landesk." So this is a uh, kind of hot off the presses. Um, so Landesk, uh, you know, Landesk was big when I ran IT back, you know, shortly after the end of the dinosaur era. It's true. You were back on punch cards, weren't you? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Landesk is a is a company, it's, if you're not familiar with them, they do a lot of, you know, kind of IT automation type stuff. I think a lot of their stuff competes with like SCCM and that sort of thing. Um so apparently they got owned pretty hard. Um, some of this, by the way, is uh, information that comes from an anonymous inside source. 
but apparently they were owned for, I think, 17 months, starting in June 2014, if this source is correct. And uh, they apparently also, in addition to having potentially accessed some employee information, uh, it sounds like they also accessed uh, source code. For the record, by the way, we are referencing a Krebs on security article. I thought I did say that. I don't know that you did. Oh. You might have, but I don't really pay attention to what you're saying. Well, that's clear. So, Are we still recording? No, we stopped We're a good. while ago. Excellent. <clears throat> so, yeah. Um, uh, let's see. So 40 gigabytes, in fact, of, uh, of information apparently was, was taken off of uh, some staging development servers and put up onto a website, which it was in turn exfiltrated off of, which apparently the uh, active exfiltrating that big mountain of data is what caused people to notice the internet connection was slow and in turn prompted people to start looking around. And, you know, one, one uh, developer noticed the IT department was logged into his development server and said, what the heck are you doing? I'm not logged into your server. What are you talking about? And it kind of unraveled from there, apparently. So what we're really saying, if the bad guys had just metered their bandwidth a little better, nobody would have noticed. <laughs> That's right. Oh, Don't get greedy, guys. We're not supposed to tell them that. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. yeah. Um, so, you know, the, it's... I'm, Dwell I'm, time, 17 months. Again... This seems to be a common theme, and we suck at spotting bad guys when they're hanging out. Especially for that long. I mean, that's that's a now, long to time. Be fair, we don't know that the bad guys were active all seventeen months. They could have broken in and gone quiet. They could have. Who knows? We don't know what they were doing. That's right. They could have been noisy. They could have been not noisy. But jeez. Yeah, there there is a. Um... There's a really interesting thing, and I I want to find this. Um, so I'm not going to say this. How, I'm just going to read this. So this is not my opinion. The implication, and this is a quote, the implications are potentially far-reaching. This breach happened more than a year and a half ago, during which time several versions and fixes of Landesk software have been released. Landesk has thousands of customers in all areas of commerce. By compromising Landesk and embedding a backdoor directly in their source code, the attackers could have access to a large number of computers and servers worldwide. Now, we don't know that a backdoor has been planted. This is conjecture. That's right. That's why I was very careful to say that was not my opinion. Uh, however, I think that this kind of goes back to the you know um, vendor management, right? Um you know, just think about that as a possibility. Holy cow! You know, but at some point you have to trust somebody. You do, but but damn. Yeah, I mean, this is what always chuckled me, made me chuckle about. Oh, we've got our source code in, in escrow, so so and so. Like, really, who's got the skill set to do a deep dive on a couple million lines of code to find backdoors? Really? <laughs> right. I mean, it. There's been crap hanging out and open. I mean, it's not a back door, right? But there's been bad stuff hanging out and all kinds of open store stuff for a decade or more. So, yeah. So it's possible, but it's also possible they just stole data and didn't even think about planning back doors. We don't know. 
Well, right. exactly. I mean, the, the, all, apparently, all we know is that they were stealing source code. I think. I think the, you know, the article, the Krebs, I suppose, is the one who was speculating this. Um, I, I think the idea was, you know, was this like the end stage? You know, they already did. You know, they've been there for seventeen months, and they did other stuff, and and now this is kind of the last. You know their last uh, hurrah. I'm curious how they f- how they found out when the intrusion began. Clearly, they they must have some good logging they kept. <laughs> That's gotta suck. Yeah, <laughs> their logs going. Oh, it happened oh, when? Oh yeah. Oh, oh. Put 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 the next backup in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's there too. Oh. oh. Yeah, so, th- so that one, just to answer that question, and this is a quote, according to a land desk employee who spoke on con- condition of anonymity, the breach was first discovered, or was discovered quite recently, but system logs show the attackers first broke into land desk's network 17 months ago in June 2014. And that's all we know, right? There's no more specificity. But he does go on to say, the employee, we'll call him John, said the employee, or said the accompanying only noticed the intrusion when several co-workers started complaining of slow, slow internet speeds. A Landas software developer later found that someone in the IT, depart- IT department had been logging into his build server, and so he asked them about it. The IT department said they knew nothing of the issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sad. So sad. <laughs> You know, this brings up a good point, which is just basics. Uh, you know, if they had a basic to alarm, a basic monitoring system, alarm when known bandwidth is being overutilized, go hunt that down. You shouldn't have to wait for your users to complain. Right. Or if your IT department has no business login into your build servers, maybe you could have noticed that a while earlier. That's a lot to ask of a, of a developer. I'm not saying that. I, I guess I'm. I'm more on the point that maybe you should put a harness on, you know, some kind of a, a test harness or security harness on your build systems. Oh, I see. Yeah, and there may be reasons. They might be doing authenticated scans for vulnerabilities yeah. or whatever. Who knows? But don't, I mean, um, we don't know that. We maybe, yeah. maybe they did. I mean, you know, we we well, really don't. It goes know. back. It goes back to the assumption that a lot of organizations have is when they build things, they build it with IT convenience in mind, not security. Yes, that's exactly right. So, and we're paranoid, cynical old coots, so we think about these things. <laughs> True. I'm, tr- True. I'm trying not to make you have to bleep out so much. Thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate your uh, sacrifice. I almost went on a string of vulgarity right there, just to just to make you work harder. Well, on, on that note, I think we'll... Uh, <laughs> I think we'll cut it off while we're still ahead. Hey, and for our listeners in the U.S. or U.S. territories or just enjoying U.S. customs, happy Thanksgiving. That's right. For the rest of the world, this is the holiday we celebrate when the pilgrims came over and gave plague blankets to the Native Americans. Oh, my God. I can't believe you just said that. No, that that was not. No, 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 no. no. Is that Columbus Day? Yes. Oh, my bad. Jeez. Can't take you anywhere. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, I hope you still listen next time. 
Jesse. Andy will we're having a meeting with the HR department later. Again. Again. And uh, you know, thank you again for every for listening, and uh, we'll talk again next time. Uh, in the meantime, you can find links to the show or to the stories we talk about tonight on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kalett on Twitter at Lurg. And, uh, you know, I don't know what to say, but anyway. And then me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And uh, with that, we'll talk again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.